thank you all for coming. Um, the essence of yoga. Is this working? Yeah. So I'll begin with um, a simple dictionary definition of the word yoga. Um, <clears throat> as it is often said, as many of you know, the word yoga means to link or connect. Um, and also, as I've explained a few times here in Australia, uh, we still have the word in English, by the way, because English is a, an Indo-European language. So in English, we have the word yoke, for example, in the sense of yoking things together, linking things together. And also in the um, very intimate connection, linking between two people is called conjugal love. So the jugal is yoga. So it's a, um, of course, the word yoga in Sanskrit can mean many things in different contexts. But when we are speaking about spiritual practice, then it has a clear meaning. Um, whenever we talk about linking, clearly we're talking about connecting at least two things. And so what two things are we connecting? Uh, in this case, of course, the yogi is the person practicing yoga and the feminine, the word would be yogini, sometimes called yogini, but it's actually yogini. And um, so in terms of a link, on one side of the link is the practitioner, the person who's engaged in the spiritual practice and yoga in this context means something like a spiritual practice which, which connects you. And um, what's on the other side of the link? That's really the uh, 64,000 Aussie dollar question. So on the other side of the link, well, you could begin by asking this question, what is the most valuable link I could possibly make? What is the most beneficial link? Because you could link to a I don't know, a cup of lemonade by picking it up. So, so what are we actually linking to? And ultimately, um, we are linking to, in the highest sense of yoga, uh, the source of our own existence. The source of our own existence. So why do that? You could say, why link to the source of your existence? The reason is because in this understanding, uh, yoga is a spiritual practice which it occurs historically within a great civilization. And this great civilization uh, had a very clear understanding, uh, simply put, of life. Very clear, in fact, there was a, um, very prominent 
scholar of religion, the academic study of religion at the University of Chicago in the 20th century, uh, Eliade, who said that yoga, if you look at human history, is the earliest serious disciplined study of depth psychology. In other words, we can talk about our surface psychology, like I'm mad, I'm happy, I'm eager, I'm reluctant, I'm sleepy. You know, we, we can talk about our surface emotions, but really you could say that, um, at least in the modern Western world, a uh, chain smoking gentleman named Sigmund Freud, <laughs> among his uh, intellectual atrocities, he did do some good things. And he, um, and it was really the idea that what we think, what we think we're doing on the surface is not always what we're really doing. And of course that gets into the unconscious or the subconscious. The idea that all the forces that are acting upon us are not immediately present to our conscious awareness. And that of course is problematic because you, you may not understand what you're really doing or you may not, may not understand why you're really doing it. And so that was the idea of going beneath the surface of our psychology and trying to find out, you know, it's kind of in a car going under the hood, you know, what's really going on down there? Why is the motor rattling? And so that's the idea. So yoga, you have people, very serious people, disciplined people, men and women, who are devoting a significant part of their lives to going inward, going inward to find out who am I and uh, what is, and can I find reality, not merely outside, but within myself. Obviously, if we go, because these, these are the two directions that one can go. Consciousness can move in various directions. Sometimes, of course, as we know, it goes sideways. <laughs> but, but generally, consciousness, the normal tendency in the material world is that consciousness goes out through the senses, by the way. It goes out through the senses into the visible world, the audible world, and so on. And so consciousness goes through the senses to explore the world and the nature of our experiences of the world through our five senses is that some of them are pleasurable, some of them are painful, either physically or emotionally. And uh, basically in this world, we try to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain, physical or emotional. And welcome to the material world. That's basically what's going on here. We come, up, we come up with different strategies. For example, making a lot of money is a strategy to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Or finding my one true love, as if. You know, that's, that's another strategy to try to maximize pleasure. And, I'm not really that cynical, but <laughs> maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And, getting an education or cultivating friendship or traveling. So, so consciousness often or usually goes out. Now, the, um, 
the fifth stage of um, yoga, isn't it? It's called Pratyahara, the Ashtanga Yoga, the Eight Limb Yoga. And um, so I'll say a word about that. The, the first four stages of yoga, yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, are really preparatory. Because when you're following the various rules to begin yoga, like don't be a thief and uh, you know be a nice person and all that. So, and then the niyamas, all these rules, and then uh, asana, you have to sit comfortably because otherwise if you meditate for a long time, you'll get terrible cramps. And so that was the idea actually, to condition the body to be able to sit for meditation. And then pranayama, controlling the breathing, so that's all you could say moral and physical preparation. So that morally you're fit, you're not. And, and because if, if, if we are virtuous, then our mind will be peaceful. Uh, if we're not virtuous, our mind will not be peaceful. So becoming virtuous and, and getting gain a mastery over your body so you, you can sit properly, you can breathe properly. And then you're ready to actually, it's like, okay, now the game starts. And so the first stage, after these first four stages of preparation, the, the next thing is pratyahara. Prati, in Sanskrit, as a prefix, uh, it can mean different things. But in this context, it means counter, or uh, in the sense of like a counter direction, like something's going in one direction, and then you go in the counter direction, the opposite direction, like to counter attack or to like, counter position so and ahara the sanskrit word ahara ahara means like sort of like taking in and so the word ahara it can mean eating it's something like the english word uh consuming because when i was young uh consuming meant you ate something and then as time went on it began to mean consuming like buying things or just basically trying to enjoy anything is like you know consumption consumer, blah, blah, blah. And so the Sanskrit word ahara is very much like that because it means literally taking in or, or consuming, but prati, counter. So what does that mean to, to, to go in the opposite direction? It means that our senses normally go out, our, our consciousness goes out through the senses into the world, exploring the world, searching for pleasure, trying to avoid pain. But when you reverse that, Prati means like reversing. So when you reverse that, and the consciousness sort of overcomes its natural, somewhat hedonistic propensity to just go out in the world, but goes within instead, that's pratyahara. That's pratyahara. That's exactly what it means. It means that you direct your consciousness in the counter direction, in the reverse direction, and you, and you bring it within. And then, of course, because that's not what we've been doing most of our lives, uh, there's a tendency for the consciousness to bounce back out, right? And um, so therefore, the next stage is dharana, which means hang on, basically in Sanskrit. Um, and so the idea is you bring your consciousness within, and then you have to hold it. You have to hold that, that state of consciousness. And then once you've done that, once you've done that, once you've brought your consciousness in the opposite direction, counter direction within yourself, looking for yourself as an eternal being, looking for the source of your existence, who in the Yoga Sutras is called Ishwara, the Lord. 
And then, so once you brought your consciousness within and you prevented it from bouncing back out, so you're holding your consciousness within, then the next stage is jhana, then you can meditate. Obviously you can't meditate if you're just like looking at things out there and you can't meditate if you look within and you bounce back out. So first you gotta bring it in, hold it there, and then you can meditate. It's actually quite simple and logical. And then when your meditation becomes very advanced, it's called samadhi. So that, that's the Ashtanga yoga system. And uh, this is actually a universal thing. I mean, in India it's called yoga and there's Ashtanga yoga, but all around the world, there have been people who in their own way and to whatever extent their culture or personal ingenuity allowed have done this. I'd like to give one example from the 1600s in Europe, uh, your friend and mine, Rene Descartes, who was a great scientist and uh, thinker. And uh, he wrote a book called His Meditations, His Meditations. And to understand why Descartes' project of looking within was so uh, interesting, uh, he did two things that were very interesting. Because contemporary with Descartes was, of course, the beginning of the scientific revolution, or sort of the, in the 1600s, people like Sir Francis Bacon, sort of the rediscovery of the discipline scientific method, the empirical method in the 1600s. And so if you take these two figures, Sir Francis Bacon, sort of a non-vegetarian name. <laughs> anyway, so if you, if you look at Sir Francis Bacon and then, Rene Descartes, it's interesting because they, they both want knowledge. They both want to understand the world they were born into. But Descartes is going, I mean, Bacon thinks that he will find knowledge by going out into the world. And Descartes thinks he'll find knowledge by going within himself. So they're actually going in opposite directions. And Descartes is looking for the soul. In fact, he finds it undeniable that there is a soul. Because another thing he did, which was quite revolutionary in his time, because that was the 1600s, the Renaissance was kind of flowering, but also in Europe, there were all these like deadly, horrible religious wars between Protestants and Catholics. 16th century was a, uh, you know, if you're into horrible battle scenes, it was a good century for you. And that was going on. And also the, the, the churches still had enough control where you couldn't just say anything. So even during the Renaissance, some great Renaissance thinkers were burned at the stake because they said the wrong thing in someone's opinion. So it wasn't exactly, you know, the, the great human rights century, but it was the Renaissance. And so Descartes said something which was kind of shocking in his time, I think it must have been. He said, what if everything I think I know I don't really know. What if I think I know things, but what if I doubt everything? And this is an age where you have to believe what the priests say, or you have to believe what the Bible says. And so Descartes kind of went on this intellectual adventure. And he said, what if everything I think I know, everything, you know, bar none, what if everything I think I know, I don't really know? What if I doubt everything, everything? And so he sat down to meditate. And, said, and then he said, is there anything which I cannot doubt? Because if I do doubt it, I'm just being willfully foolish and irrational. So is there something I actually can't doubt? And he said, yes, there is. And of course, then he expressed himself in Latin. He said, cogito ergo sum. I'm thinking about this and therefore I exist.
because if I didn't exist, I wouldn't be sitting here doubting that I exist. So, so he said, I cannot deny that I, I actually exist. And he, and he said, I exist as an individual conscious being. And that individual conscious being is not the body. The body is just covering me. I mean, it's really highly in your self-interest not to be your body. Because, you know, however many cheap thrills we get by looking in the mirror. <laughs> um, you really don't want to be your body. Because your body's temporary, it's going to die. I mean, if your body's eternal, we could talk about it. Uh, but it's not. The body's going to die. And so I find it amazing that you have some scientists or atheistic philosophers that dedicate their whole lives to arguing that they will die. There's something macabre about that. It's like sort of noir philosophy. But anyway, so getting back to yoga, by the way, in the Christian world, uh, generally historians say that the first sort of uh, Christian thinker that made what they call the inward turn, that like, because if you look at the Judeo-Christian tradition, at least from the Middle East, it wasn't the most internal meditative culture. It was very much out in the world, historically based and, and talking about things happening out there in the world, including apocalypses and things like that. And it was uh, Augustine who had some very interesting features and some kind of awful features, but, but he kind of looked inward. The idea that the soul is within, that you can look inward in the Christian world, it sort of began with Augustine. But in any case, so it's something that you find around the world in different times and places. Um, just one little anecdote here you may find interesting. How Zen started, Zen Buddhism. I remember when I, I, when I was at UCLA many years ago, I took a course in the history of Japanese religion. And so we were, we were studying about how Zen started. There was a, um, a Japanese Buddhist that went to China to visit pilgrimage places and learn from masters. Because if you lived in Japan, going to India was kind of a, an expensive ticket. And so China was right there. And China had developed its own kind of powerful yoga world. And so Japanese people would go to China. So he was specifically going to see one great Buddhist master who was said to be in Nirvana, even though he was still alive, he was in Nirvana. He was the great master. When he got there, he found out that the master was no longer living and that he had uh, left this world in sort of an awful way. Apparently that just like in Europe and other places, people who are seen as religious masters get many gifts Therefore, they get sometimes bulging bank accounts. And so this, this um, so-called Buddhist master had been attacked by thieves who were killing him. And it said that he was being killed rather than just being that great Buddhist master, like, you know, there's no self, the body is nothing, it's all illusion. And just, uh, it was exactly the opposite. He actually was, it said that he was shrieking in, hysterically in agony and fear, so much so that uh, you could hear it from a mile away. You could hear his screaming and shrieking and so much for the master. So this Buddhist pilgrim thought, uh, I don't think that's the way. So we went back to Japan and he built this meditative thing. And of course, meditation in Sanskrit is dhyana and the closest he could come with his sort of Japanese phonetics to uh, dhyana was Zen, and so that's where Zen comes from. <laughs>
anyway, so all around the world, you see people trying to find the truth by meditating. And um, so what's really in there? Like, what's the essence of yoga? What, what is in there? Uh, so um, the self, the Upanishads give this very interesting analogy. They say that when you really go inside and, and, and you can see you know, what's in there, uh, what, a metaphor is given. It's like two birds on a tree. And one of the birds is trying to enjoy the fruits of the tree, which are not really healthy for the bird. And the other bird is just the witness. The other bird is just watching and trying to sort of tap him on the shoulder. I don't know if birds, birds have shoulders, right? Anyway, <laughs> yeah, so, so the, 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 the bird that's trying to enjoy the fruits, that's the individual soul is trying to exploit the material world. And the witness bird is um, Krishna. So um, Krishna himself explains what the essence of yoga is, by the way. In chapter six of the Bhagavad Gita, after explaining various paths of yoga, Krishna says, yoginam api sarvesham. Api means however. So in the word api, however, appears, it means like, even though I just said this and that, however, still, this is the truth. And so Krishna says, however, of all yogis, yoginam api, indeed of sarvesham, sarvesham means of all, of all yogis, Krishna says, madgatena antaratmana. Antar, we have in English still, internal, internal, antar. And Atma, the inner self, Antar Atma. Because the reason sometimes in Sanskrit uh, the text says inner self is because the, uh, the word Atma or self can also be used as your sort of day-to-day -day, uh, reflexive pronoun. For example, if you had self-service, if you had a self-service car wash back in ancient India, it would be called an Atma Seva car wash. <laughs> and, or, no, I'm sorry, it would have been a self-service chariot wash. <laughs> but, so, <laughs> please laugh at my jokes. <laughs> so, so the word Atma in Sanskrit in a philosophical context can mean you know, in the most profound philosophical sense, the self, the real self, but just like in English, it can mean just a reflexive pronoun, self-service, self-made, first man or woman, and so on. And so therefore, sometimes, uh, to really make clear that you don't understand how the word's being used, uh, in Sanskrit they'll say, antaratma, the inner self, the internal self, the real soul. And so it is said, Krishna says, yogi nam api sarvesham, indeed, or however, of all yogis, madgatena one whose inner self, whose deepest self, literally has gone to me. Madgata. Gata is gone in Sanskrit. Madgata. Madgatena antaratmana. One whose inner self has gone to me. 
and shadhavan bhajate jo mam, and one who worships me with faith. Now, I just gave an English, a literal English translation, a typical literal English translation of shadhavan bhajate jo mam. But I want to go deeper into these words because the English words faith and worship are, you know, that's kind of the way you translate it, but there's a lot more going on in the Sanskrit words. So first of all, Shadhavan. Van means one who possesses, like Bhagavan, or which becomes Bhagavad Gita. So one who possesses Shadha. So what Shadha? And what does it mean to possess it? Again, it's often translated, Shadha is often translated faith, but it's something really more active in Sanskrit. Dha in Sanskrit means to place something. And Shrad means trust. So often in the Western world, even in uh, Judeo-Christian theology, to have faith can mean simply to believe in God. Like in the sense you believe that God exists. So you have faith. However, um, if the, the idea of faith in the, in the simple sense that I believe God exists is another word in Sanskrit, which is astikyam. Uh, from the Sanskrit word asti, which simply means he exists. And by the way, he is, or he, in fact, the S in the English word is, is Sanskrit S from asti. And so asti is the German ist, and the French est, pronounced phonetically the spelling, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or ace in Spanish. So that's all Sanskrit, asti. The verb is us, the, the Sanskrit, there's some verbal that is us. So from the word asti, he exists. It can also mean she exists or it exists. You have the word astikim, which means a conviction that he exists. So the word shadha is something more than that. Shadha means that you really put your trust because you may think God exists, but you may think you don't really want to hang out with God this week or this week. Or, <laughs> or whatever. So Shadhavan means you really, you literally place your trust in someone. You put your trust in someone. There's a lot of people who we know they exist, but we don't trust them, unfortunately. So, so Shadhavan, so one who has this quality of placing their trust, and then the word Bhajatejomam, and one who worships me, the verb budge, as in the English word, I won't budge, that's actually how it's pronounced. Bodhis tend to pronounce it baj, or bhajan, like I'm going to do bhajan, which means they're going to do a container in Sanskrit because the word bhajan actually means a container. Anyway, baj or bhajanam. So the word baj is very interesting. For example, there's a famous prayer to give you some idea what the word means uh, that Govinda Madi Purusham Tamaham Vajami, I worship Govinda, the primeval Lord. Actually, literally the original person. So it can mean to worship, but it also means to share. It also means to share. It also means to accept. And I'll try to put all these means together. For example, if you ever wondered in ancient Sanskrit, how did people pop the question? You know, what's a typical marriage proposal in Sanskrit? And uh, if you look at Mahabharata, one common way that they will pop, you say pop the question in Australia? Mm -hmm. One common way that people will propose is, is that uh, 
often the man will say to the woman, Bhajaswa mam bhajantam twam. Bhajantam twam. That please accept me as I am accepting you. Or honor me as I'm honoring you. And so the idea, and, and, and Krishna uses the word, for example, Krishna says that he budges us. <laughs> In the sense that where Krishna says, mam prapadyante, as everyone approaches me, tam I precisely, reciprocally, budge them. And so, <laughs> so what does that mean? Krishna, the same word which is used for Krishna, that we use to worship Krishna, tamaham bhajami, I worship him. Krishna says he uses, that, he uses that same word to say what he does to us. So what does Krishna mean? Does he mean he's worshiping everyone? And, and so again, this word which is translated worship really means uh, to share with, to reciprocate with. Um, that's why it's used for the wedding proposal. Like, please accept me, please share with me as I'm sharing with you, as I'm accepting you. And so, um, and of course, in that same word, you get the word, from that same root, you get the word bhakti. From that same root, and I'll spare you all the uh, phonetic details, but you get the word bhakti. The word bhakti or the word bhakta, one who's devoted or a devotee. So all that's coming from the same root. So bhakti means one who is devoted to sharing their life with the Lord or one who is devoted to truly accepting, because if you really accept someone, if you really accept someone, you accept them as they are. I mean, we know there are countless instances and great examples in uh, the novel Mansfield Park by Jane Austen, but there are, there are countless examples where uh, someone thinks they're in love with someone, this is the person I've been looking for all my life, only to discover later they fell in love with their own idea of the person raise your hand if this hasn't happened to you <laughs> okay no one raised their hand so it's um yeah to um so someone thinks i accept you i love you but they're not really accepting the person or loving the person because they're kind of falling in love with their own idea of the person so truly accepting a person means as they are, and you take a good look and you know you want to maybe let that one pass on by. <laughs> so so Krishna, so to really accept Krishna, I mean interestingly, Krishna actually knows who we are. He really knows us, I mean, far better than we know ourselves, and yet astonishingly he still likes us and so so krishna really knows us krishna really knows us and he loves us and accepts us and so to accept god to accept krishna means as he really is and so going back to this verse where krishna says who the greatest yogi is that remember that yogi nama pisarvesham indeed of all yogis or however of all yogis um Madgatena antar atmana, one whose inner self has gone to me. Madgatena antar atmana and shadhavan, 
with shadha, in other words, real trust. Not just believing that someone exists, but you really trust them. You believe not only they exist, but that this person loves me, that this person will never act against my true interest. This person would never, you could say never knowingly harm me, but in the case of God, there's no question of unknowingly harming you because he knows everything. So, so it's believed that this person will only act for my good, will never act against my true interest, will never really harm me. And so therefore you just put your heart into it. And that's what Shadha means. And, and then, so one who with their inner self gone to me, really trusting, uh, it's translated worships me, but really accepts me as I am. It, to accept Krishna as he really is. Because if you think you have a problem with people trying to make you something you're not, or wanting you to be something you're not, I mean, imagine all the headaches God has. <laughs> because everyone thinks they know better than him who he is. Like, isn't it? I mean, is there anything more annoying than someone that says to you, I know who you really are. You don't understand who you really are. You don't understand what you really want. I know you really want me. It's like, aren't those the kind of people you want to, like, I don't know, maybe not set their hair on fire, but maybe something a little less violent. So, so Krishna says that um, one who truly accepts me, one who wants to share their life with me, and in that sense, worship me. So, and then Krishna says, that person, sa, he, meaning he or she, in Sanskrit, sa, me, to me, is yukta tamamata, is considered to be yukta tamam. And I really need to explain this. Mata, here is a Sanskrit. Uh, it, it's, there's, anyway, mata can mean other things, but in this case, it's, a, it's the suffix, which means, uh, no, tama, I'm sorry, yukta tama. Tama is a superlative degree in this case. Sanskrit, like English, has uh, the, you can have an adjective in the comparative degree and superlative degree, like fine, finer, finest. And so Tama, there are different ways you can make, the two ways, main ways you can make the superlative degree in Sanskrit. I'll spare you some of the grammar. It's actually interesting. One of the ways is, we still have in English, by the way. In English, we make the superlative degree of an adjective usually by adding ST to it, like fine, finest, or best, <coughs> which means goodest. Or, for example, rosiest, or etc., etc. So that actually is Sanskrit, where you make the superlative degree by adding ST. But the other way, like Shreshta, or Gadishta, and so on. So, but another way you make the superlative is by and adding the suffix tama. So, so that person who has done all these things, trusted me, accepts me, is the most tama, uh, most yukta, I'm sorry, the most yukta. So what is yukta? Yukta is the same word as yoga. Because yoga from the root, huge, means to link. And so linked, like L-I-N-K-E-D, linked, uh, that's yukta. So throughout the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna often uses this word because the whole Bhagavad Gita is about, is about yoga linking to the absolute truth, linking to the source of your existence. And then Krishna often talks about someone who is linked, someone who's actually connected, someone who's in a state of yoga. So to be in a state of yoga, the word is yukta from the same root. <clears throat> 
And so yukta tama means in the highest state of yoga. In the high, is the most connected, the most linked. In other words, in the highest state of yoga. And so Krishna says, I consider that person whose inner self has gone to me and who accepts me, worships me, uh, shares their life with me, uh, really trusting me, that person I consider to be the most advanced in yoga, the, the most connected in yoga. If anyone has ever had the privilege of really being in love, or at least even believing you were, because it's better to have loved and lost than never have loved at all, but, but when a person really feels that they are in love, truly in love, then you know there, there's nothing more than that. It's like, okay, I'm really in love, but I think I'm going to give this up to, because I, I need, I'd like to go maybe two times a week more often. I want to go bowling. And, um, and probably, you know, just recreationally. And, you know, if I fall in love, I'd only be able to go bowling once a week or something. <laughs> so the idea is that, um, that ultimately, um, really love is the greatest thing. It really is. And if you value love, if you value love, then you value relationships. And if you value relationships, it means we are actually eternally individual souls. So if there's a relationship between two people and they kind of merge into each other, it's considered to be an emotional disorder called uh, codependence. codependence. Yeah, codependence. And if two people have a relationship and they really don't, unite at all it's called a bad relationship <laughs> and the run-up to separation or divorce and so so the idea is in terms of the uh the ultimate state of yoga to understand linking you have to understand the nature of reality in, in an ontological sense which i'll explain uh in other words how do things exist what is the nature of existence itself and if we look everywhere in the world, whether it's loving relationships or grammar or common perception, common consciousness, everywhere you look, you'll find that the nature of reality is that things are one and things are different. And that's true everywhere. In, in. For example, the example I've given many times, um, right now we're all here sharing this experience in this room or in these two rooms or two rooms in the hallway and a little bit up the stairway. So, so we're all having this experience. And uh, in order for you or I to participate consciously, to be conscious of this experience in a way that we would consider to be sane, like you're really here, you, ha you have to perform two functions which in Sanskrit are called samasa and vyasa. And there's English words. I mean, it's not like people in Western psychology don't know this. Um, they might call it, for uh, anyway, they may call it analytic and synthetic consciousness. The idea here is, so in Sanskrit, samasa, sam means together, like sankirtan, together kirtan. 
And we still have some, that Sanskrit prefix in English through the Greek. The Greeks pronounced sun in Sanskrit, sun, and it came into English as S-Y-N, sin, like synthesis, the together thesis, or symbiotic when living things combine. So the S-Y-N in English, synthesis, symbiotic, all that, that's just the Sanskrit sun, as in Sankirtan. In case you're interested, <laughs> for those of you who are historical linguistic fans. And asa, actually, it's like asana, because asana means seat, sitting, but also placing, like placing yourself, sitting. And so asa can mean simply placing or putting. And, and, and so uh, some asa means putting things together. So, for example, here in this room, well, let, let's start with the vyasa. You've heard of vyasa, the sage vyasa. Vyasa, or vyasa is actually a, 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 a title. It means, it literally means like the divider or the categorizer, because some, the, the opposite of some in Sanskrit, together is V, which means apart, which they still have in Italian. Like in, in Italian, they want to tell you like, get out of here. They say via, via, which means away in English, like, via, like, get out, you know, away. And that's what, that's what V is. And so in Sanskrit, some means together, V means apart. And so Vyasa or Vyasa means putting things apart. And because Vyasa divided the Vedas, he's called Vyasa because he placed the Vedas apart, he divided them. So anyway, in terms of healthy cognition, you here, for example, when you come in this room, you have to be able to make all kinds of distinctions, like that's the floor, that's the ceiling. If you try to sit in the ceiling, it'll be a very awkward experience for you and probably other people will not be happy. So, because you may fall on them. So you have to be able to distinguish between the floor and the ceiling, you have to know what, what's the perimeter of your body, where other, where other people's bodies, so you just stick to your own body. And I mean, so there's all kinds of things, like where's the speaker? No, that's not the speaker, that's the clock. And so if you think about it, just walking into the room without, without thinking about it, you're making hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of distinctions, not to speak of the incredibly complex uh, items that you find in ordinary language. Like right now, I'm speaking English. So, if, you know, if you understand English, you're just listening. But actually, if we took what I'm saying, even if I'm just making ordinary, speaking ordinary English sentences, like, and if you actually analyze it, and you sort of make a computer model which can calculate what's going on, it's extremely complicated. Do you ever notice why the robots that answer your phone calls never quite get it? <laughs> and you want anyway so because language is extremely complicated there's all kinds of things going on in language like syntax which means the word order if you change the word order <clears throat> if i say uh i see you or you see i which is bad english but it means something else and so there's syntax there's word order there's semantics shades of meaning it's just and, and there's millions of things going on in ordinary language that's why it's so hard for computers even today to really get it. And so and you're doing all that. You're identifying all these parts of speech, all the, the syntax, everything. So just sitting here, you're, you're, you're making thousands of distinctions just in what seems to be an ordinary experience. And yet you have to put it all together. If it's all in pieces, you're kind of like, you know, it's a bad LSD trip or something. And so you not only take everything apart, but you have to 
put it all back together into one seamless experience. So despite all these distinctions, in another sense, it's just being here now. You're just here right now, and it's just one experience. It's not really divided. It's one seamless experience. And so even one and different, it's the nature of just consciousness. Or, for example, I told you, relationships, not codependence, not alienation. It's one and different. A good relationship, you're one with the other person, you're different from the other person. Categories and members of categories. This is, thing, this is something that kept Greek philosophers up at night, believe it or not. And that is, for example, what's the relationship between a category, like to say horse, the Greeks, you know, that's something they would use as an example, and then an individual horse, like, like all the horses, are they all one in, in a sense because they're all members of the same category? And so if you, you can say the horse is a fine animal. And it's understood that when you say that, you're referring to all the horses alive in the world today, or maybe all the horses that ever lived. And so you can use one singular, you know, one word to express, to describe many, many creatures. So if one word can describe millions of creatures, are they in some sense one as members of the category? Or are they simply different? Or are they one and different? And of course, they're one and different. So I mean, everywhere you look, and without categorizing, you can't be a rational human being. You can't make sense of the world if everything you experience is like for the first time. Like imagine trying to drive a car. So it's just the nature of reality. And if you look at our relationship with God, it's also one and different. We are one with God. We are different from God. And so if you try to say we're only one with God, then you, I mean, you can't get more pretentious than that. And the real God doesn't have to go to a dentist and, you know, yeah, I think I'd, I'd better take the uh, anesthesia. You know, it's the real God doesn't sometimes act foolishly, doesn't sometimes embarrass himself, doesn't, you know, isn't ignorant of most. I mean, think of all the facts in the universe. What percentage of all the facts in the universe do you think you know? You know, everything that could be known, every single fact in the universe, and what percentage of those do we know? <laughs> and, you know, how often, let's say in an average day, are you your absolute best self, most noble, most virtuous, most unselfish? No, I don't want any attention. I'm just happy being here. And so, <laughs> I know I love you. You don't have to love me. I don't care if you love Johnny. It's um, So the idea is that we're not God, and, and yet we're one with God. There is a oneness with God, and yet in Prabhupada you say we're one quant uh, qualitatively, but different quantitatively. So one and different is the nature of reality. And because there is a difference, there's a link, getting back to yoga. That's why yoga means you're, like, ultimately your eternal link to the source of your existence, the absolute truth of Krishna. And so because you're different, there can be a relationship. And because you're one, it's a great relationship. And that's what yoga is really all about. Because how can someone say, no, I don't want to have perfect love. I'd rather just, you know, get yoga powers and sort of produce glowing pomegranates or something. <laughs> I mean, really. So... Uh, in fact, in the Yoga Sutras, it said that if you get attached to these all these mystic powers, you're uh, you're really missing the yoga boat. 
So that's the essence of yoga, to understand yourself as an eternal soul, to understand your relationship with the Supreme Soul. I was mentioning the other day, may I end with this, and then you can ask questions or you know, bring up very large sums of money as, as a gift to me, but... <laughs> anyway, we'll just take questions now, because my I usually make about 18 last points. <laughs> so any questions on, on any of these topics? Mark, we have so many um, manifests that we have pushed over here and then expands himself to expand himself to get the God of God. Yes. And we have so many different writers. Why? I just we want to push them. There is one sense and another sense. Yeah, we are monotheists, actually. Um, it's interesting. Krishna, um, well, Prabhupada used to always say, variety is the mother of enjoyment. That's an English saying, variety is the mother of enjoyment. And the reason there are so many forms of Krishna is because Krishna really likes us. And therefore, he reciprocates with, because people have different expectations, different ideas about God. And for example, let's say you have 10 children, which is economically not feasible nowadays if you live in a city. But let's say someone had 10 children. Let's say someone had 10 children and each of the children has their own way of relating to the father or to the mother. And parents reciprocate with their children. You know, because that's, and not only children, if you have friends, I mean, that, that's what friendship means. Friendship doesn't mean that you have to be like me. Friendship means that I like you for the person you are. And therefore, when you really care about someone, when you're with that person, you, not that you just metamorph into something else, but you try to be sensitive to that person's needs and, and wishes. And they're sensitive to your needs and wishes, and that's a great relationship. So Krishna, for example, some people, even going you know, apart from the Vedic conceptions, some people want to worship kind of like the majestic and usually totally humorless, you know, God of religion. You know, that majestic God that you can't see because it's blindingly glorious and, who, and that God who never, ever cracks a joke. And so... So if someone, you know, is kind of attached to that idea, because there's many religions, you know, they have the, they even say like really silly things like you can never see God. And imagine, I mean, God would be practically some kind of pervert if that was true, because <laughs> I mean, imagine, imagine you have a child and then you'll never let your child see you. That's bizarre. In fact, if you know anything about parental love, when parents have children, their greatest happiness is for the little, you know, bubbling thing. I mean, the child grows up, as the child grows, you know, and, and, and as a child starts to really become aware and conscious, and there's a stage where the, you know, the, where the little baby really recognizes the mother or the father, and then, you know, at a, at a later stage, the child can actually start to or try to speak, communicate with the parents, and then as the child gets older, the child really starts to understand the parents and, and, and love them. And, and, and so the greatest joy for any parent is for, is for your own child 
to see you and really see you and love you. And so the idea that, that a God would create us or just make us exist and then hide forever, you know, and if that was true, God would really need a good psychiatrist. <laughs> like, God, please reveal yourself. Sorry, I'm on meds right now. <laughs> so you have all these bizarre conceptions of God. But anyway, and so Krishna, some people, even in the Vedic culture, some people like garbage, you know, want to see God as a creator of the universe. Krishna does expand himself into forms in which he creates the universe, but ultimately he also has great things, you know, he, he enjoys. The way I sometimes put it is Vishnu is God at the office and Krishna is God at home. And so it's to reciprocate with us. And even, so I think that's the basic answer. Krishna is appearing in many forms out of love for us to, to offer us a menu. Not to, Krishna doesn't want to force himself on anyone. And so he allows you all kinds of options. You can worship him like this, you can worship him like that. So he, because he respects your free will. See, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, some of the Vaishnavas are worshiping Rama and uh, yes. whilst being in the company of Because sometimes you just love someone and that's just where your heart is. So, and yeah, Krishna respects, imagine being omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet still sincerely and profoundly respecting the free will of people infinitely your juniors. And so that's one of Krishna's great opulences because, I mean, we become proud of any little thing like, did you see the way I fit into that parking space? <laughs> you know, it takes very little to set off our pride. So, but Krishna, I mean, imagine being infinitely beautiful, infinitely powerful, infinitely talented, infinitely everything good, and still actually not being proud of it. Actually not being, I mean, really. So Krishna, one of his opulences is his detachment. So it's, it's actually, it really is an opulence that someone could be infinitely great in every way and it doesn't go to his head. So Krishna really is infinitely pure. And he actually respects us sometimes more than we respect him. And Krishna really respects our free will and um, really a great guy. I mean, if you think about it, Krishna, <laughs> I mean, infinitely upstanding. He's, um, once you actually understand Krishna, you, you, know, you can't settle for less. I mean, you can't settle for a God that's not infinitely good looking. It's not the supreme rock star. So Krishna, yeah, Krishna's um, the best. And if someone's got a better idea, bring it forward. But I've never seen a better idea. You know, it's interesting because if you look at all the world religions, which we respect, we are making a claim that no one else makes. Sometimes you find this uh, kind of gibberish that there's so many religions and each one claims with the only way, which by the way, not true. And, um, and they all contradict each other, which is often not true. 
because in every religion there are the fanatics and there's the philosophers and the philosophers every religion if every religion can actually talk to each other fanatics can't talk to each other but do they really represent the religion god is not a fanatic by the way you'll be happy to hear that god is not a religious fanatic <laughs> and because god is not a religious fanatic anyone who is a religious fanatic does not represent god that's kind of my rule of thumb so Krishna, um, anyway, there's so much we can say about Krishna. Go on forever about Krishna, but um, is there any other questions? It's um, not so much a question as um, well, maybe asking you to elaborate a little um, because I know. A lot of people would say, well, what kind of God will let a baby live for half an hour in Africa and die? Um, how is this quality of detachment that Krishna has, um, how can we not see it as um, cruel indifference and see it actually as kindness? Very well stated. This, of course, is the very famous philosophical problem of called the problem of evil. Sometimes it's called theodicy from the Greek words theos, God, and dk, which means justice. Is there justice in God? And so I think a good way to approach this would be to first, you know, like sort of put the whole issue of God aside and ask the general question, under what conditions can we reasonably say that someone is acting morally? Because that's a real question. I mean, I, I mentioned this the other day that the question is uh, that if, if we really have what sometimes is called a triple O God, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, all good, we really have a triple O God. So, you know, the argument, just to lay it out, I spoke about this the other day, it's very simple that if God knows everything, he knows there's evil in the world and suffering in the world. If God is all good, he wants to stop the suffering and evil. If God is all powerful, he can stop the good and the evil and suffering, but he doesn't stop all the evil and suffering. Therefore, there is no triple O God. You know, there is no God who's all knowing, all kind and uh, all powerful. Now, interesting, there was one guy who wrote a book a number of years ago called Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? He concluded God is all good and all loving. He's just not as strong as you thought he was. <laughs> and uh, of course, this is an old idea. This is called, uh, this is real dualism or, or sometimes called Gnosticism. The idea that uh, there is a God, but God is not absolute. God is not absolutely powerful. And he's engaged in a cosmic struggle with the forces of evil. And it's kind of like, you know, we don't know. <clears throat> we don't know who's going to tap out first. <laughs> and so tap out is a reference to mixed martial arts. <laughs> so um, here's the problem with that argument. First of all, the argument is superficial or simplistic. In this sense, that, well, let me lay it out for you this way. In order for someone to be considered, in order for us to reasonably say that someone is acting morally, 
in the best way. It must be true that if that person at any time knowingly causes pain or suffering or allows pain or suffering that the person could eliminate, but, but, but that person allows it to continue, if that person ever either causes or allows to exist preventable pain or suffering, then it must be the case that the person chose to do so in order because that was the least painful way to bring about a necessary and significant good. To give an example, uh, you go to the dentist. I just imagine like, anyway, a real stupid American. Do you have dentists in Australia? Anyway, so, so, so let's say you go to the dentist and um, let's say you go to the dentist and um, the dentist says you have a problem and I have to treat it. Otherwise you're going to suffer a lot more. Now you expect the dentist to be a civilized human being and to treat you in the least painful way possible. If it turns out the dentist used a procedure which is much more painful and the reason is, I don't know, I just kind of never got to do that. I want to see what it was like. <laughs> and so, so again, even though there's some pain, the, the dentist is morally required to do the procedure only if it's actually necessary to prevent much greater suffering and to use a, the least painful procedure possible. So if all those things are in place, then the dentist is acting morally. So if we apply that to God, we know there's suffering in this world. And so in allowing this suffering in the world, is it the fact that God is allowing or causing the minimum amount of suffering possible to bring about a necessary good? That's really the question. And most people don't ask that question because this is not the age of philosophy. So, so is that the case? For example, what if someone or let's bring in one other question. Is it the case that a universe which fairly reciprocates with people, is the universe acting morally in terms of those who govern the universe? In other words, let's say, for example, someone uh, steals from another person. Just sort of avoid bloody examples here. Let's say someone just steals from another person and then as karma, someone steals from that person. So clearly, this reciprocity of the universe, this reciprocity of karma, definitely indicates that there is moral governance. In other words, why should that be the case? If there was nothing like a god or goddess or any type of divine governance of the universe, if that was the case, then um, why bother? I mean, why, why would the universe reciprocate? Why wouldn't there merely be physical actions and reactions? Like if you, you know, bounce a ball at the wrong angle, it 
comes back and hits you in the nose. So, I mean, you know, why shouldn't there just be physical laws of nature and act upon you as you act upon them in a reciprocal fashion? Why in this, of course, last night we were talking about the bi-dimensional universe and the fact there's a moral, objective, moral universe. So, uh, why should, in other words, if, let me put it this way, if there's a God and we claim that God is actually a, a perfectly moral being, in the sense of someone who always acts reasonably according to moral principles, then should a moral God create a reciprocal universe? Let me just think about that question. If God is a perfectly moral being, because to say that God is above mundane laws of morality doesn't mean that God is above morality. I mean, because to be moral simply means to be good, to be virtuous. And the Bhagavatam says God is all good. And, and a big chunk of being good is to be moral, to be fair. So that's, that's a question. Should a perfectly moral God create a reciprocal universe or one in which, let's say, people can kill, rape, steal, and nothing ever happens to them? I mean, in a sense... If you think about the original question, the problem of evil, the argument that there can't be a God who's all good, all knowing, and all kind, it's, it's, it's an argument that rejects God because the argument claims the universe is not reciprocal. In other words, God created, what they're arguing is that God created a universe which does not fairly reciprocate with people's actions. So that good is not fairly rewarded and evil is not fairly punished. And so that's that central argument of atheism is accusing God or, or saying that we do not live in a reciprocal universe. Because that's the essence of justice, that you know you get what you paid for, you get what you deserve, good or bad. So, so that central atheistic argument is that the universe is not actually reciprocal. Now Obviously, the main problem, if you, if you accept, I'm not going to use the capitalist metaphor, if you buy into, you know, bottom line, buy into, I love all these capitalist metaphors. Anyway, but if you accept the Judeo-Christian view that this life of yours is your first life, you have no previous life. Therefore, I'm going back, let's say, to the child in Africa or in Australia or America or anywhere. Let's say, I mean, there, there are suffering children all over the world. So if this is everyone's first life and a little child who clearly is innocent in this life, because if we're talking about this, clearly a child cannot be seriously guilty of anything in this life as a child or as an infant, and so to punish the innocent is an act of gross injustice. And anyone who punishes innocent people cannot be a moral being. That's the, that's the idea. Now, if you accept that Judeo-Christian, typical Judeo-Christian uh, idea that this is our first life, then yeah. I mean, good luck trying to show that God is fair and just. I mean... I can't help you there. And they've actually tried to weasel out of it many different, you know, many sort of, you know, many ways. 
well, God is this, or we just don't understand, or blah, blah, blah. But really, you know, if this is our first life and innocent people are suffering, it's not to drive anyone into agnosticism. Now, in, of course, in, in, in our philosophy, we have previous lives. And therefore, uh, we can say that that's not a baby at all. I mean, what if that's little baby Hitler or something in their last life? Oh, he's so cute. <laughs> so cute, he's got this little fuzzy mustache. <laughs> so the idea here is, <laughs> so, so if it's the case, if it's the case that we have previous lives and we are responsible for our karma, for our suffering, then on what grounds will you criticize God? Not only that, not only that, you could say, well, and, and people actually give this argument, which is, Really bad argument. They say, well, why doesn't God create a world in which we cannot do evil and therefore cannot incur punishment? For the simple reason that, that I mean, God could do it. God could just sort of permanently forever lobotomize you. But the point is, I mean, but if you lost your free will, what does life even mean? I mean, imagine all that because let's say, for example, God forbid a person is captured and held against their will so that they have virtually no freedom over their own movements. Maybe they're chained up or something and they, they, they really have no freedom over their own actions. But still your mind, you can think. And there, there are cases where people have been, you know, been put in this situation but their mind is free. And sometimes people, for example, incarcerated have written great works of literature, philosophy and so on. But losing free will means no cigar at all. I mean, I mean, I mean, having no free will means you can't even think. You can't even, because if you choose to think about something, that's an act of free will. So you cannot choose what you think about. You have no freedom to even choose what your thoughts will be. You have no freedom of action. I mean, that's, that's really horrible. It would be just the, the most horrible. Life would be, what would it even mean? And even if you couldn't even think, you couldn't even think that I wish I could get out of here because that would, that would be will. You would, you, would, you would have the will to get out. So that means you don't will anything. You don't want anything. You're just, you're nothing. And so to, to turn someone into probably less than a vegetable. I mean, vegetables probably have more free will than that. I mean, we know actually some plants seek the sun. Just follow the sun. Anyway, that's an old pop song. So like for example, sunflower plants, I'm full of, I could give this whole lecture just by quoting from doo-wop and 60s songs. <laughs> anyway, so like the sunflower, it's interesting because when they say sunflower in Portuguese, or actually in all these Latin languages, gita sol means it turns to the sun. So you could say it's just a chemical reaction, there's no will, but there's all kinds of experiments that, which suggest that even plants, you know, what's that book called The Secret Life of Plants or something? <laughs> and so you're less than a vegetable. You don't even qualify to be a vegetable. It's nothing. So if God made us so that we couldn't do evil, it would be a much greater evil. 
because God would take away from you everything that makes life even worth living. Because even if someone is evil, or let's say doing really bad things, but there's the hope that in the future, after they get really kind of pummeled by the laws of nature, that they can somehow, they'll eventually be redeemed. But if you have no free will, you're just, you'll never actually be anything. So therefore there's a greater evil. You could say that, let's say someone sticking their hands in your mouth and you know, with, with machines is evil, but what if it's a dentist preventing a greater evil by you know, taking out, let's say, some kind of problem there which could actually even kill you or just cause you unbearable pain. So therefore, uh, in answer to your question, we actually have to think about this. And um, so then people say, like some people say, well, let's say some baby, obviously we never want these things to happen, but let's say some child or baby suffers great. And you say, I don't believe that that child could ever have done anything to deserve that. And you say, well, it's not the child, it's the adult in the past life. Yeah, but it's just a child. And I've had experience talking to people, they just like, they really, you begin to wonder if they actually understand the English language. Because they're so attached to the body, they just can't understand that this person was in another life and was not a child, was a fully responsible adult. So I think that's basically it. Any other question? I know you're all afraid you may trigger me again. Yes? <laughs> What's the relationship between, for example, Krishna and Krishnamacharya? Oh, I don't really know that gentleman so well. The yoga instructor from the 1800s. Oh, oh. I, to be fair to him and to you, I would have to read more about him. Anything else? I have a question. Yes. Will you mind sharing with us one of the beautiful moments that you share with Prabhupada that you always go back to? Beautiful moment that I shared with Prabhupada. Um, okay. I think rather than just one particular moment, I, I'll talk about something which was always present at every moment with Prabhupada. And that is, he was completely immersed always in serving Krishna. I remember one time that, um, I'll tell you one story from Pittsburgh. 1972, Prabhupada went to New Vrindavan and he gave what were called Bhagavad Dharma discourses. And it was kind of a landmark event in this con's history because New Vrindavan is it's a little bit out of the way in the uh, hills of West Virginia. And um, it was 1972, kind of like the peak, the culmination of all that counterculture and all that. And it was, was going to go downhill very soon after that. And so hundreds and hundreds of young people, you know, men and women, young men and women came all the way to New Vrindavan to hear Prabhupada, apart from all the devotees that came. And it was kind of like an unprecedented gathering of people interested in Prabhupada, his own disciples, yeah. And, and just interested people. And then after that, uh, after that sort of extraordinary festival, in which I had many, many, many pastimes of Prabhupada at that festival, so I was staying you know, in his house, and uh, 
we all went to Pittsburgh where Prabhupada spoke at a large venue. It's actually called the Syrian Mosque. And um, so I remember being in Prabhupada's room. Uh, he had a darshan in his room at the Pittsburgh temple, which is a beautiful temple back then. And um, he had to do some banking business because um, because he was building temples. He was, he was, he was kind of like beat the clock. He was really, he was really very conscious. He was very conscious that his years were numbered in this world. I mean, that happened in 1972 and we were all young and Prabhupada would be here forever. And, you know, literally five, five years later, he left. And so, and, and he knew, he always tells that every one time when he flew into Hawaii, we greeted him at Honolulu airport. And we had a little meeting there with the press and he was speaking to us. And he said something which I heard him say other times. He said that, um, he said that I can't stay with you forever. That, um, and he, what, he, what did he say? He said the, uh, not the signals, but the, uh, the signs, the signs are already there. He was talking about his own health. And he was, he was saying that, uh, and so when I heard that, I think all of us were just thinking, oh, Prabhupada is just trying to make a philosophical point that, you know, you can't stay forever in this world. I mean, we never dreamt that he actually meant that within a relatively short period of time, he would leave this world. And I also remember he said, actually, at the time, something which is now interesting. He said that, he said, you are thinking, he said to us, we were sitting there. He said, you are thinking that you are young boys and girls, as you'd always, always call us, young boys and girls. He said, you are thinking that you are young boys and girls, and I'm an old man, but I was young like you. I had my friends. I was playing with my friends. I was long, young like you, and now suddenly I'm old. He said, this will also happen to you. So you the idea being you better channeling Krishna. And so, <laughs> and so now here we are. But anyway, so when Prabhupada came to Pittsburgh, uh, he was in his room giving a darshan, his big room, and there were many, many devotees there. And I was sitting right next to Prabhupada. I, like, let's say if, 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 if Prabhupada, let's say if this is Prabhupada's desk and he's sitting behind the desk, I was like right there. I was, I had this technique actually that, you know, exasperated my other senior god brothers, but I did it. And that is, when Prabhupada would go on walks, I just have to mention this, when Prabhupada would go on walks, everybody wanted to walk next to Prabhupada or walk near him or hear what he had to say. And among the sannyasis, I was not the most physically intimidating. <laughs> and so, but I was clever. <laughs> so what I would do is, you know, all these big sannyasis walking next to Prabhupada, so I would go and walk about, I don't know, maybe like, you know, 15 meters ahead of Prabhupada exactly lined up, you know, so Prabhupada was coming like this, and I was just this side, and I would just slow down. <laughs> so when Prabhupada came, I would just be next to him. <laughs> and when I did that, I, I just remember all of my sannyasi godbrothers would just look at each other and roll their eyes because I mean, they, they, they couldn't push me out of the way from Prabhupada. And <laughs> I would always do this, you know, just get up ahead and just slow down. But anyway, so we were, Prabhupada actually would smile, he saw what I was doing. So in Pittsburgh, 
So Prabhupada had to go over these checks because he's gained donations. And of course, he would spend every penny to try to save us by building temples, by printing books. And because uh, some of this is going on in India and none of us could figure out the Indian banking system. I don't think Indian banks can figure out the Indian banking system. <laughs> anyway. So Prabhupada was sitting there going over these checks. And um, actually, after this, I'll give you another Prabhupada story with checks. So he's going over the checks, and then the darshan ended, and everyone's leaving, and Prabhupada's going over these checks. And I managed to be the last one to leave. I just kind of got up, and, and I sort of acted like I was walking around, but I was really walking in circles. <laughs> and so anyway, but what I saw sitting, but before that, when I was sitting next to Prabhupada, even as he was going over these checks, he was actually in ecstasy. And there were tears coming from his eyes because he was absorbed in Krishna. He was going over, you know, banking business and he was in ecstasy and, and shedding tears of separation from Krishna. And then finally we all left and I had to go. And so you know, I was very young, I was like 23 years old. And I remember, so I had to close the door behind the left. I kind of, you know, kept the door open like that. And the last thing I saw, Prabhupada, he was, he was obviously in this ecstasy, this deep ecstasy. And there was, someone put a peacock feather on his desk. And he picked up this peacock feather and he was kind of like hitting himself with the peacock feather in this deep ecstasy. And, and then I closed the door. So, so my experience with Prabhupada is that he could be joking, he could be doing banking business, he could be chanting Hare Krishna. He was always absorbed in this ecstatic love of Krishna. So the other banking story. When Prabhupada came in 1974 for Rathiatra in San Francisco, and, uh, okay, I'll tell you a few fear fearless stories and we'll get to the checks. Prabhupada really was fearless. His name was Avaya. Fearless, Avaya Charnaravinda, A.C. And so um, I remember one time we were walking in LA and we, we, we were walking in Venice Beach and then we'd walk through the sand back to the parking lot and then Prabhupada would, you know, stamp his feet to get the sand off his shoes. And so, you know, suddenly Vedic culture means you stamp your feet after you walk on the beach, so everyone was stamping. <laughs> so like, if there were like 40 devotees there, everyone was stamping their feet along with Prabhupada, you know, the little ducklings. And um, so we were going through this foot stamping or shoe stamping exercise. And suddenly this there was this big dog showed up, which was kind of great day. And it was like either a, a, a small horse or a very large dog. <laughs> it was barking at us. And I remember Brahmananda was there who was on the large side, large size. And um, there were all these, you know, devotees, young machos and yasis and everything. And and so, but everyone kind of, I mean, no one wanted to go forward and challenge this huge dog. So Prabhupada just laughed and went forward and chased the dog away. Because he had this thing, he would say like in India, if you want to make a dog away, you say, huh, huh. so Prabhupada, he's had complete faith in his mantra. And so he just went, huh, huh, you know, the dog, the dog ran away. And um, yeah, then one time, uh, but anyway, so back to the banking business. I saw him chase another dog away, actually, in New Vrindavan. So we were in San... Oh, here's another fearless story. <laughs> Prabhupada, uh, 
came to San Francisco in 74th Rathiatra, and the temple was not in a great neighborhood. It wasn't like the worst, but it wasn't too many steps above the worst. And it wasn't like the safest. It wasn't, you know, like a really dangerous neighborhood, but it wasn't completely safe. And so Prabhupada had, they got him an apartment, or maybe it was some devotee's apartment, which was just like one street away from the temple. So when Prabhupada came, we were all with him. And then the darshan ended, so we all went downstairs to go back to our quarters. And I looked back, and I saw that Prabhupada was sitting with his back against the sort of the front wall of his apartment. And there was a big window so that, because it was night and it was dark, you could just see Prabhupada's head right there in the window. Right there. And so I felt kind of protective, like um, this is not a, a great neighborhood. Prabhupada's right there, someone could throw a rock or something. So I actually went back upstairs and I tried to explain to Prabhupada that I don't think it's safe and everything. Can we, do you mind if we move your desk over to a sidewall? So Prabhupada didn't look thrilled by the idea, but he said, okay, you can do it. So then you know, I got some devotees, we moved the desk, we moved the cushions and everything. And then I felt, I felt better. The Prabhupada, you know, the, so then I went to sleep and came back the next morning, Prabhupada had moved the desk back. <laughs> <laughs> Banking. Was it? That was the banking story. Second. The banking story. So I was sitting there when, when Prabhupada arrived and he got all these donations. So, so he, uh, and I was sitting right in front of Prabhupada. And um, I remember I was just meditating really intensely. Like, I want to serve Prabhupada. I want to serve Prabhupada. I was just really feeling that. So then he looked up at me and said, okay, uh, make a list of all these chicks. So then... So I got my wish, I got my service, so I made a list of all the checks. And then when Prabhupada left, I realized he didn't even take the list with him, he actually just, <laughs> <laughs> he just gave me a service. <laughs> yes? It was the food. <laughs> no, no, it was a combination. I'll explain. Okay. Um, first of all, I was a student at Berkeley, and the Hare Krishnas, the devotees started, they, they had a temple in San Francisco. That was the famous, you know, Frederick Street, the famous San Francisco temple. And they would come, maybe, you know, occasionally to Berkeley and chant on campus. And I remember the first time I saw them, they were, um, they set up a Persian rug right on the campus in Berkeley, in the, sort of the free speech area. And uh, they had a sitar. It was actually a very elegant harinam. They had a sitar, an harmonium. They were sitting on this rug. And it was like, it was really interesting. And I saw they had shaved heads. And I thought two things. Number one, these people really are serious about what they're doing. And number two, I would never do that. <laughs> So I respected them for, I thought, God, they're really committed. Because in those days, you know, here. So then someone, anyway, I had all kinds of really ecstatic, Krishna was very kind to me and had all kinds of really ecstatic experiences. And then Prabhupada came and gave a lecture at my university, at Berkeley. In fact, it was on the street where I lived. It was like on the same street, maybe like a block or two down. 
And uh, in those days, everything was experience. I mean, Cryptops probably remember the whole thing is to experience everything. And so I went with a couple of friends. Actually, I didn't want to go to hear Prabhupada's lecture. I, it's not that I didn't want to go, but I was suspicious because for a sociology class, I had to go to a, hear a yogi speak and write a little report on it. And he just, he never said anything. He, he just kept saying, relax. Everything is all right. There is no problem. Relax. <laughs> That's all he said. So I was there with my girlfriend and um, I got the giggles. You know, when you're young and you just, I just like, and, and I just, I, I couldn't hold it in because I just, and I didn't know anything about India. I just thought this is ridiculous. It's so comical. And you know, the other people in the room started turning around, shh, because I was like, so I just you know, you're trying to hold it in. And um, so that was my experience of an Indian guru, an Indian Swami. And so, um, so when they said, you know, our, our, our spiritual master is coming, I thought, is that going to be like this other Swami? But then I thought, no, the devotees are, I thought they were really authentic. So I went and I, we walk, I walked into this big hall. They'd set up all these seats and, you know, the spirit of the times. I walked, my friends took their seats and I just kept walking, sat down on the floor with the devotees because I wanted to experience it. So then Prabhupada came in from the, from the rear and he was surrounded, I'm sure, I mean, in retrospect, it must, it must have been Vishnu Jana and Tamal Krishna and all these. So, and when Prabhupada walked in, my first impression, which is totally unmediated by any kind of thought or analysis, was just like a complete spontaneous impression. I thought, I thought he, he was like a, um, like a commander. Like he was like a real commander because in those days, no one had authority. You know, our parents, forget it. The government, are you serious? The, um, you know, our professors, clueless. So it was a time when, you know, you, you didn't trust authority. In fact, in fact, the, 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 the theme of the 60s was don't trust anyone over 30. And yet when Prabhupada came in, he just had this natural authority. I could just see that. He, he's really an authority, he's like a commander. And, and then he walked up and they had a little stage and he sat on the Vyasasana. And I was sitting there right in the middle of all the doilies. I wanted to experience everything. And uh, so the kirtan started. And because Prabhupada was there and the movement was very young and that's you know, all they had. They didn't have books. There were very few books. There, were no, there, was no, there was no Vrindavan or Mayapur. It was a small movement. And so like Prabhupada was really everything. And when the kirtan started, devotees were just so ecstatic. And I had never actually experienced like ecstatic religious activity because I, you know, I, we went to a religion like Western religion, you know, where you go and you sit down in a nice sanctuary. Okay, stand up, turn to page 43, repeat, you, have to, you know, that kind of stuff. And so the devotees were like so ecstatic because Prabhupada was there. And then Prabhupada, in the middle of the kirtan, stood up. And he began to jump, you know, in ecstasy, like, like we do. And, and the devotees went totally berserk. And, and I remember, I wasn't, I mean, I was, I was not on drugs. And I remember that I just saw bodies flying all around. <laughs> and I became completely disoriented because it's like Arjuna says in the Gita in chapter 11, Dishona John Ayler, like, I don't know the directions anymore. And I actually wasn't sure if the devotees were like, on the ceiling or the walls, or because there were just all these flying bodies all around me. Because Prabhupada was dancing, and um, 
I remember that I knew that actually I'm not in ecstasy. And then in my heart, I knew why. I mean, the answer came to me, and that is because these devotees have earned it because they're actually devoted. They're actually giving up things, and I'm just living a very selfish life. I don't deserve to be in ecstasy. Somehow I understood that. And uh, so that's my first experience of Prabhupada. And the next time I saw Prabhupada, and I thought, I loved his lecture, although I probably couldn't have repeated one word he said. But I just thought it was a great lecture, although I didn't really know what he said. But the next time I saw him is when I went down to be initiated in Los Angeles. Is that kind of the idea? So anything else? Maybe it's one more thing about when I went to see Prabhupada. And, um, because when I, I joined the Berkeley Temple and Krishna actually revealed to me, I mean, in a very clear, explicit way that, that Prabhupada has seen God, that Prabhupada can see me. I mean, I just, Krishna revealed it to me in a very clear way. And um, so when I went down to be initiated by Prabhupada, I was, I could hardly stand it. I mean, it was like, I'm going to see a pure devotee with my own eyes. And, and just that idea that I was going to see Prabhupada with my own eyes, it was, it was, I was just like almost stunned by it. And so then, in those days, they were on La Cienega Boulevard, the temple, before Wasika. And so Prabhupada was going to drive up. And so we, we created like two little lines where the car would stop and Prabhupada would walk between us. And that was just like, it was almost more than I could bear, this idea that I was going to see a pure devotee. And then, at the last minute, the temple president, Gargamuni, he ran up to me with a flower garland and said, here, put this on Prabhupada. And the idea is now I was going to put a garland on Prabhupada. I almost fell over backwards. And so, so I was in that like nervous state. And then Prabhupada drove up and as the world acharya of ISKCON, the official, his official car was a little Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> it was a, um, yeah, it was a used, not a late model, but a used Volkswagen Beetle. But it had this, and so as Prabhupada came in, somehow the way the lighting was, it was at night, it was dark, because this was, I went down in, I think in January or something, so, you know, the days are short in the Northern Hemisphere. And, but when Prabhupada drove up and I saw him very clearly for the windshield, and what I immediately understood was, oh, it's Prabhupada. I was always seeing him. And I understood, like, this is my dearest friend and, 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 of course, my spiritual master. But I saw immediately that I was always seeing him. And it's just Prabhupada. And um, in those days, he would sit down he, for initiation. He would actually, he, would, he actually would sit down there at the fire sacrifice and person like the fire. And, um, and then I was initiated. And he said, your name is Ridainanda. And, of course... We were so nervous, hardly anyone remembered what their name was. <laughs> and so after the initiation, we get a little piece of paper. And so actually I gave myself my own name. I'll tell you when that happened. Because I got a piece of paper that said, Hridayananda Das. And somehow or other, seeing those three letters together, H-R-I, I just thought those three letters can't go together. And it's, you know, it's an English speaker. You can't have a word that's H-R-I. So I thought, you know, the secretary must have spelled it wrong. 
if you were wondering, was I always this humble? <laughs> <laughs> or did it happen later in life? No, I was always that humble. So, so when people asked me what my name was, because no one else could remember either, I said Hari Dainanda. <laughs> Which is actually perfect Sanskrit, by the way. It means the bliss of the mercy of Hari, Hari Dainanda. But that just wasn't the name probably gave me. And so for, for, for the next um, six months in ISKCON, I was Hari Dainanda. <laughs> in fact, there's a Back to, an art, Back to Godhead article in 1970 by Hari Dainanda. <laughs> and then one day I wrote a letter to Prabhupada for something. I think I wanted to go out and open a center in Latin America or something. And Prabhupada wrote back, Dear Vidanda Das, by the way, your name is Ridayananda. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> which, Actually, Prabhupada wanted to call me something else. One time, there was a GBC meeting, and uh, somehow, and, and so I wasn't there. I was somewhere else in the temple. So Prabhupada sent for me. So he told his servant, "Go call Rida Govinda." He said, "Who?" And then he was talking about me. He said because I reminded him of one of his godmothers named Rida Govinda. So. One thing about Prabhupada, since we're talking about Prabhupada, is he had a great sense of humor. And sometimes he would practically laugh at our like super seriousness because like I'd go into Prabhupada's room and I'd be so serious and at one time Prabhupada kind of like laughed at us. I was so deadly serious because I'm going to see Prabhupada. I came in and Prabhupada said to me, so what is your message? <laughs> and then... Uh, Another time I went to see Prabhupada in New York and I, I'd started my, I'd just taken sannyasa, I started my college program and Prabhupada really liked it. Actually, he mentioned our college program. He was giving a nectar devotion class in Vrindavan and he mentioned our program, which I called Bhagavad Dharma Discourses after Prabhupada's, you know, discourses and um, so Prabhupada really liked that program. So I went in to see him. He was just finishing a nice breakfast and he said, um, so, Ridananda Goswami, you are actually traveling and preaching. I just sit here and eat. <laughs> He's in like a really jovial mood. So anyway, so then we were talking, and um, he really liked the college preaching program. He was asking me about it, and he was, and I just felt so happy. He was, he was like praising the program and giving me attention. And so naturally, I thought, God, I'm really something. <laughs> and so, so later that I, I thought that afternoon, okay, I'll go back to Prabhupada's room and then get some more attention. <laughs> so it was Prabhupada. Of course, he perfectly understood our thoughts. And so I went back into his room and there was a young girl, you know, I don't know what she was, 19 or 20, uh, who was cleaning Prabhupada's room. And um, I'll never forget this. Prabhupada completely ignored me, you know, and he was only giving attention to this girl. And he was like, he was like a very loving grandfather. And I remember he said like, what is your name? He was like really kind, like a very kindly father, grandfather said, what is your name? 
and how old are you? And he was just so pleased because she was really sincerely cleaning his room. And, and he, did, he didn't say a word to me. So I understood clearly, I, I learned this great lesson that at that moment, you know, I mean, she was in the ISKCON pecking order. You know, she was just some young girl in ISKCON. You know what that meant back then. And so, and I was a sannyasi. And yet at that moment, she had, she was the one that had the real love for Prabhupada, the real devotion for Prabhupada. And Prabhupada was just thinking about her and talking to her. And it was a great lesson for me. It was really, it was really a good lesson. And I still remember him talking to that young girl with just so much affection, so much kindness, reciprocating with her devotion. So, anything else? Going, going. So, thank you all very much. <laughs> thank everybody in other countries or other places listening. Hare Krishna. Yes, really extensive.